Hi, this is Tom Brevoort, and you are listening to the Captain America Comic Fans Podcast. Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 172 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. My name's Rick Verbonis, and I am your host. And there's another fella on the show, a guy I'm in cahoots with. He's a swell pal. Goes by Bob Lucius. Hey, Bob. Heidi Ho, we're going to have a guest today. You ready to flip your wig? Does it show? <laughs> Does it show oh. that I'm wearing a wig? Well, what are you calling me, a chrome dome? <laughs> oh, I love it, Rick. Uh, is that a... What is that a call out for? What are we doing tonight? Well, Bob, that was some 1940s lingo. Yeah. Uh, that I'm throwing down at you. Yes. Are you catching what I'm throwing? I am, Rick. I am. All right. Well, yeah. why do you think I'm doing that, Bob? Whew. Um, are we exploring Captain America in the Golden Age? Kinda. Uh, <laughs> today we are covering Captain America Theater of War. And yeah. most of there's there's seven different one shot stories. And most mm -hmm. of them take place during World War II, take place during uh, the 1940s. Yeah, so okay. I thought yeah. it would be appropriate to to kind of greet you in that 40s lingo. Yeah. I like that. I like that. You know, I was listening, you know, I'm a I got Sirius XM in my car. Uh-huh. Got one of those like cheapo, like try it out packages. And here mm -hmm. I am. I've got it. So I listened to these 1930s. I haven't told you. This. I listened to these 1930s and 1940s radio shows uh, on Sirius XM on my drive in in the morning. And they're oh, really? actually okay. they're pretty good. You know, they're okay. really, they're funny. There's mysteries. There's uh, like murder mysteries. There's science fiction. There's Westerns. And they had one this morning, like uh, for hire. I think it was Jim Novak and he's a private eye and it was like, he got framed for murder and he mm. had all these, like, it was just typical, like 1940s uh, sort of detective genre where he had all these like, like zingers, like, uh -huh. harder to track than a grain of rice in a Shanghai suburb. You know? <laughs> yeah. Good stuff. It, yeah. The floor looked like it was varnished with bourbon, you know, things like, you know, uh -huh. yeah. Lots of great like lingo from the, from the late thirties, early forties in these shows. Uh, they're really uh, yeah. entertaining. It's fun stuff to listen to. They are. And they have the Superman radio show on uh, oh, yeah? once a week, the serials. Yeah. Uh, the George Reeves. Uh, I don't know if it was George Reeves or uh, wasn't there a guy who played him before George Reeves. Uh, Maybe. Think. Yeah. Maybe. I think there was. Um, just briefly. And, uh, and anyway, the show is show, you know, just lots of fun to listen to those. Excellent. Excellent. Um, have you been doing anything fun yourself lately? No, no, no fun for me. No. Um, <laughs> I listen to the radio on my way to work. That's my, <laughs> uh, my guilty, okay. My guilty pleasure. I gotcha. Um, yeah, no, I've been, uh, what have I been doing, Rick? Uh, I've been scanning a lot of photos. You don't say. Yeah. You know, because I, I, I like the genealogy thing. So uh, I recently came across uh, uh, a bunch of old photos, family photos, you know, black mm -hmm. and whites from uh, from early 20th century. And so uh, I have like I have a couple of Facebook pages that I maintain for my family. So one of them is like my 
Lucia's side genealogy mm-hmm. um, and one is for my wife's side of the family. And so mm-hmm. whenever I come across these photos, I like to high res scan them and upload them so that people can um, can have them if they want them. Mm-hmm. You know, and I do a little research about the person and their background and all that sort of. And of course, then I, I provide them on Ancestry.com too. So folks can link them to their Ancestry pages. But that's sort of like, you know, that's like a, 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 something I like to do. I did a little mm. bit of that over the weekend and, uh, and I find that like rewarding. That's nice. It's nice yeah. to have a hobby. It is. Yeah. You know, uh, and I feel like I'm, you know, I'm helping out folks. Right. Because, um, you know, these photos, they, they get old fast and. Did I ever tell you about my, uh, I almost started a business once, Rick. Uh, you touched on this very Did slightly I? during the episode where we had our wives on. Okay. And uh, you said something about a photo scanning uh, investment thing that yeah. uh, Casey was kind of laughed at. Yeah, uh, well, it was. It was, was it? It was like when we first moved to Florida and I was like, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. And so, I'm, I, you know, I'm not an entrepreneur. That's, that's not me. Um, mm, that's me. Yeah. I'm just not like, I don't, I don't like making money. I just want people to give me money. Uh, okay. I, yeah. And so uh, even now, like, I don't know how much I make. My wife gets it, goes into the bank account, whatever, you know, she does all that sort of stuff. I, I don't, I couldn't, I just like doing the work. And so, um, but I needed to do something and I don't know. I, you know, I, I wanted to do something I felt was meaningful and so I've been in, into ancestry genealogy for, for quite some time. And so there was this startup company out of Texas called, uh, can I say it? Yeah, sure I can. They're out of business. Fostorian. Okay. And what they did is basically set you up with a big Pelican case. I mean, a, a gigantic Pelican case. And it had a couple scanners and a laptop and some other things. And basically what you would do is you would go to people's houses and you would scan their like family photos from like their old family photos. Like mm-hmm. if they had photo albums and things like that um, before, and this is like a, like would be a target rich community down here. Cause a lot of old people mm-hmm. who uh, have a lot of photo albums, like my, my parents did. And, uh, and those photos are deteriorating, you know, as each year goes by. Mm-hmm. And so it would be an opportunity to basically capture them all. And they had their own website where you could then upload the pictures to be shared and write stories about to go with each picture. It was a really interesting business model. And I really think it could have been um, a hit down here uh, and in other places where there's, a, there's an aging population. But they were just completely terrible, terrible company. I mean, they sent me everything. And it was like, uh-huh. it wasn't a big investment. It was like, I don't know, $4,000 or something. Wow. Got all this equipment, got everything, but they had no, like, they had no marketing savvy. Like I mm-hmm. asked them for like, you know, even like templates for ads for newspapers and, and local media and like they, they had nothing, right? The website was a bit clunky. So I would give them like ideas about how they could, you know, make it a little nothing. Right? Oh, I'm and sure they loved you. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, cause they didn't, they didn't seem to have anybody like beta testing um, the software. Mm. so uh but anyway they within like six months of me getting on board with them boom went out of business bankrupt so wow you have like that that Midas touch i see i do yeah but i i had all the equipment Mm -hmm. uh so i sold the pelican case and then i kept the scanners and that's what i use now yeah i need to get a new scanner i i have a scanner like a normal size scanner Mm -hmm. but but any art that i buy yeah if it's larger than a nine by twelve I got to like 
go someplace to get it scanned and then, you know, email it to myself or whatever. Right. Um, yeah, I need to get one of those, those larger scanners. Yeah. But, I mean, they're not, they're not too, you know, not too bad, you know, cost wise these days. Prices mm-hmm. have gone down so much. Yeah. So anyway, that's what I've been doing. What about you? Oh, I'm grumpy, Bob. Oh, I don't know why. Well, <clears throat> uh, Bob, I don't know if you know this about me, but uh, I, I'm a big football fan. Oh, maybe, you, maybe you've heard. I think somebody had mentioned that somewhere along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my team lost in the playoffs, oh. and uh, there's something about the finality of it all uh-huh. that's just so, you know, you just it's just so, I don't hmm. know. And and the fact they did it on a poor note, and uh, now now there's there's questions of whether or not coaching staffs getting fired and retiring retiring players. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh, you have been paying attention. <laughs> oh. <laughs> did you take uh, maybe uh, John or Doug or Seth's advice when they were on the show? You know, remember that when the, my comic store uh, customers yeah. and employees came on the show, and they said they'd always check check the scores when they came in on a Monday <laughs> to know what kind of mood Rick was going to be in. Well, no, Rick, I have a very, very firm, uh, principle that I, I don't take advice. So. No. Yeah. Oh, okay. No, no. Good for you. I'm glad that's working out with, in your marriage. Uh, yes, I'm a little grumpy, but I'm sorry to hear that, we'll buddy. get over it because you know yeah. what, Bob, we're here today to yeah. talk about, Captain America. Right. And so one of the things that we said that we were going to do in 2024, we we're going to try out a new style of of covering comics. Um, you know, we, we've we've been for three years now doing the panel by panel, acting out, reading out the comics. And uh, and that's been fun. And we're going to continue to do that. Uh, but so some people have said, you know, I don't need to hear all that. Uh, just talk about the comics. So that's mm-hmm. what we're going to do. And all it's right. a series that uh, I like to call Recap. <laughs> There's the marketing guy right there. Yeah, exactly. Right. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, so we are going to recap um, Captain America Theater of War. It was a series of seven one shots. And uh, quite frankly, I think, I think it might be best if I just read the solicitation for the uh the the trade paperback um that collects everything seven tales charting the adventures that made captain america the sentinel liberty we know today from skinny steve rogers to the shield slinger leading battalions of men into battle he'll be forced to choose between his country and his best friend and will experience one of his darkest days when a World War II mission goes wrong. He'll take on Soviet Russia and Nazis, defying the laws of physics. And, wounded behind enemy lines, Cap will face his greatest challenge, escaping a prisoner-of-war camp as plain old Steve Rogers. Plus, witness the star-spangled super soldier's legacy reverberate throughout the ages in a story set during the Gulf War. Well, there wow. you go. Yeah, you know, I feel a little cheated, Rick. Oh, yeah, I have I have a trade paperback here, but it uh-huh. only has the four Paul Jenkins. Stories. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Huh. Um, feel cheated. 
Does can you show me the cover of that again? Because it's the same cover I'm looking at. Oh, you know what the difference is? What the one I'm looking at says the complete collection. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> and this one came out in 2016. It actually came out in April of 2016, which is odd considering the comics came out in 2009, 2010. Yeah. I don't know why they waited six years to collect it. Maybe because they weren't big sellers. Because I I did have my comic book store mm -hmm. back in this time period. So I had um I sold my store in September, October of 2009. Um so only a few of the issues had come out by that point. Yeah. But they were selling just a a fraction mm -hmm. of what the ongoing Captain America series was selling. Yeah. Um so they they weren't I, I don't think they were <clears throat> um well met when it came to sales, but I think they were well met when they came to um the just critical acclaim, mm -hmm. you know, sure. coming back yeah. and, and, and so on. Because um some of these are, are just really good stories. Um and so it's done, a lot of them were done by artists I wasn't really familiar with. Yeah. Uh so that that maybe had something to do with it. I don't know, but um you know, but uh, but overall, it's it's an interesting thing, and so we we wanted to to talk about them today. So we we're going to take the seven stories. We're going to split them up. Bob Bob uh, Bob won the bet, and he he gets four. I get three, and we're going to kind of go back and forth, and we're going to uh, recap what the the story what goes on in the story, and then uh, you know spend some time talking about each one. So, Bob, that being said, do you want to go first and and pick? which one of the of the seven you want to cover first yeah i think i'm going to jump right in with uh with i, I think it might have been the first one that was released rick back in 2009 uh, america first had a had a cover date of february 2009 released in december 2008 i see and, what you did there yeah you, you did well you america first <laughs> I totally see even, what you did there. Yeah, okay, it's completely intentional. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So and it uh, wasn't the first one, by the way. It wasn't? No, which, it was the second one. Which was the first one? Just Operation Zero Point. Zero point. All right. That's a good one too. Yeah. Right, I get fair. to cover that one. All right. Well, the second one then, America Second. So America First, Rick. Uh interesting, interesting story. Written, penciled, and inked by Howard Chaikin, colored by Edgar Delgado, and lettered by David Lamphere. So uh, I, I have a particular soft spot, a soft spot for this story because it takes place in the 1950s mm -hmm. and it features the commie smasher Captain America, William Burnside. Now, we could argue, however, that this story is really about another character, this, this Senator Joseph McMurphy that's featured in the story. So mm -hmm. he's, a, he's a blustering politician, reminiscent of the notorious Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy from the 1950s in, in reality. So this, this story's McMurphy is likewise rapidly anti-communist and not above using fear and defamation to, of others to advance his political goals, which appear at least initially in the story to be about crushing the communist threat to the United States. Now, Burnside, who uh, is featured you know, early on in this story, is pretty anti-communist himself, as you, as you know. And he does sympathize with McMurphy's goals. Mm -hmm but not his methods. So there's something about McMurphy that seems to set the commie smasher off and, and, and really make him disgusted about the way the Senator uses accusations and rumor mongering to defame 
people he doesn't agree with, often without any evidence. And he's, he's really mad about the way McMurphy attacks Nick Fury in the CIA and these congressional hearings that we get to read about in, in the story. And when Burnside uh, gets to uh, the opportunity to criticize McMurphy, the senator turns his ire on Captain America himself, who, by the way, he knows isn't the real one mm -hmm. because he knows that something happened to Steve Rogers, but he doesn't know who this dude is and he wants to find out. And in the meantime, mm -hmm. he thinks he's got something to hide and he's going to smear his name all over the American media. You know, but eventually... Burnside figures out what McMurphy's game is, what his secret is. He's really a Soviet agent that had been planted decades ago to worm his way into the U.S. government. But by the time he figures this out, it might be too late because the Soviets and the Americans are, are in this bidding war to get this Nazi super technology left over from the war. And whoever gets it may have the balance of power, uh, globally speaking. And McMurphy, acting on behalf of the Armed Services Committee, manages to secure a deal to get that weapon for the United States. But he's a turncoat, Rick, and he's going to steal it and give it to the Soviets. So the question what? is, yes, the question in this story is whether or not the commie smasher Captain America is going to be able to stop him in time. So it's, it's a great story, has some pretty good action scenes, has some excellent writing that questions what it means to be a patriot in those tense times when it seemed like the whole world hung in the balance between capitalism on one side and communism on the other. We get to see Nick Fury. There's Natasha Romanova, who at this time is still in the employ of the Kremlin and happens to be one of McMurphy's handlers. You know, the nice thing about this story is Chaikin really seems to get the commie smasher version of Cap. He's not Steve Rogers, and he's got right. very different sensibilities about what the American dream means and who gets to share in it. And the nice thing also is that Chaikin gives us a little peek into the commie smasher's origin story, and it shows him actually lecturing the students at the Lee Academy. Of course, in, in the old golden age, it was the Lee School. And presumably this takes place before uh, Burnside meets Jack Monroe because we don't get to see any Bucky in this story. So really great story. Definitely worth checking out. Really enjoyed it. And, it, and it, uh, it's in that uh, trade pub that you mentioned, but it's also reprinted in the decades Marvel in the 1950s trade paperback that reprints not just this story, but all of the Commie Smasher stories from the 1950s. So check it out. Well, thanks for that uh, very astute recap, Bob. I uh, I did check it out. I thought it was a good story. Um, I I am a fan of Howard Chankin. I mm -hmm. I've I kind of always liked his art. Um, and then he has been one of those guys who's like a, a writer artist uh, combo. He's done a lot of different things. He he did um his own creation called American Flag. I don't know. Got if them all. Read. Oh, do you really? Yeah, got them off the rack back when I was a kid. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he drew uh. You're an attractive woman. He I surely did. One of the reasons <laughs> I picked him up, Rick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I I don't know where we should get into this, but he he did draw some like adult type comics. I what? Think. Yeah, I think it's called Black Kiss. Huh. I remember seeing it in my store. Like someone brought in, you know, a collection or something like that. And I'm like, what's this? And I was like, I can't sell this. <laughs> but I, I'll, I'll need to study this for a while. I... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I like Tower Chang. In fact, I had um, 
uh, met him at a uh, comic book convention. Gosh, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago and maybe 20. Yeah. And uh, of course, I I knew he drew an attractive lady. So he was like, well, who do you want me to draw? And I was like, power girl. <laughs> and he was like softball. <laughs> and he was like, I, I don't know what she looks like. And I'm like, really? And uh, and I, I don't know what we did. And like, anyway, well, I said, she's blonde. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, so he ended up just drawing somebody who, like a generic woman. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that I tell people is Power Girl. Yeah, it's his version of Power Girl. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, I, what did I mean? Did you did you enjoy the story? I did. I I did. I mean, it was. I I found it interesting too that you know this was of the seven. This was the only one that was really you know, not Steve Rogers. Right. right. Yeah. And so <laughs> I, I also find it interesting that you chose that one to start with, um, uh -huh. you know, because we're talking about William Burnside. Um, I, I did like the fact that, you know, he he is a commie smasher, but there was something he didn't like about this senator. Yeah. And um, and he was he was badass, too. I mean, some of those scenes where he's jumping in, you know, back and forth between cars and uh you know uh, some good chase scenes and you know that was uh you know it, it was it was interesting to see him in action um before he went crazy yeah although uh as i said he had he had very different sensibilities right i mean you, when he jumped into that, that car to stop those guys he didn't just apprehend them right he uh i think he oh, did you do the grenade thing yeah did yeah. you mention that i i didn't I oh okay but yeah, right. He plopped a hand grenade down a guy's pants or something and the car <laughs> blew up behind him. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, he, he handles situations very differently than, than Steve Rogers would. So I don't know. Have you ever read the, um, the Avengers 1959 series? No, Chicken I did? did not. Yeah. Uh -uh. You know, a five issue miniseries came out in 2011. It has Nick Fury assembling a team of, of you know, like Avengers in the 1950s, Ulysses Bloodstone, Craven the Hunter, uh, Namora, Sabretooth, Silver Sable, and Dominic Fortune. Uh, pretty interesting, fun, fun little series. If if uh, if you if you like that sort of time frame, that era, you like a little Nick Fury and some unusual characters. Uh, definitely worth picking up that one as well. Have to check that out. Yeah, and the cool thing about this this one shot is it also uh, included reprints from uh, a Cap story from Young Men twenty four and another one from Captain America seventy seven. So. All in all, a good deal for whatever the cover price was at the time. So, how about you, Rick? What do you what, what's up first for you? Uh, I'm I'm actually going to go with the the real first one that kicked off Theater of War, and that is Operation Zero Point. So this um, this one uh, had a cover date of December 2008, but actually came out October 29th, 2008. And it was written by someone I'm not familiar with. Uh, his name is Charles Knauf, K-N-A-U-F. Never heard of him before, uh, but I have heard of the penciler, and that is Mitch Breitweiser. So, and for those who uh, might recognize that name, it's because um, Mitch had done uh, up to this point, he, he had done a lot of work, but in some of it was for Captain America. Um, he he ended up um, doing uh, on the Ed Brubaker series. Um, he 
I guess he did several issues. And then I guess when they went to issue 600, they went back to that legacy numbering. He did a bunch around that time period. Um, he also did uh, the miniseries Captain America, The Chosen. Um, so he's he's no stranger to Captain America. And um, he, he penciled it, he inked it. And then his his wife is a colorist. And so she actually colored uh, this issue. Her name is Elizabeth Wrightweiser. Uh, lettered by uh, Art Monkey Studio, and then editor Janine Schaefer, and then of course, uh, uh, editor in chief was uh, Tom Brevoort. Shall I read the solicitation? Yeah, please. The first in a series of specials covering the length and breadth of the larger-than-life legend of Captain America, as told by the industry's leading experts in the field. First up, it's 1944, and wouldn't you know it, them sneaky Nazis have managed to crack the secrets of electromagnetic physics. Yeah, that's right. Apples may fall down in the tree world, but schnitzels are falling up in the skies over a mysterious <laughs> lab in a Polish forest, thanks to a little help from a nearby forced labor camp. Sure, we could send in the Marines, but why bother when we've got Captain America? But even Cap may be meeting his match against the lab's sadistic cybernetic com commandant, because everyone knows the only thing worse than a Nazi is a bot Nazi. Love it. Love <clears throat> it. Schnitzels. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, so recap of, of, of this, um, I'm actually going to use uh, a website uh, called um, Marvel Heroes Library. Uh, MarvelHeroesLibrary.com. If you want to check them out, um, they do reviews of comics, and you know they they recapped this, and and I thought they did such a great job. I'm actually going to go ahead and use it, but do check out their website. So, the synopsis is: uh, in Poland, 1944, a grim Captain America is a passenger aboard the U.S. bomber She Devil on his way to rescue a Nazi scientist who wants to defect bringing his great invention with him. Though he is skeptical of the reports, Cap is committed to the mission. And actually, I'd like that part of the story. He uh, he he referred um, to them as, uh, uh, what did he call them? Uh, the Boobocrats. Ah, uh, yes. Yes, right? the Boobocrats, yes. Yeah. And, uh, and so, this, you know, this is 1944. So keep in mind, this is a more seasoned Captain America. Right. Because he's he's been capped for four years now. And then he, he ends up going, uh, you know, frozen during the retcon in, in 1945. So um, he, this is a seasoned cap. So he's he's kind of I I like this scene because he's kind of sitting in, in this plane waiting to to get the message to, to, to jump out. And um, he's just talking to himself and he's kind uh -huh. of mumbling yeah. and he's, he, he doesn't believe that this is a smart mission, but. He's a good soldier and he's going to go ahead and, and follow orders. Um, and then suddenly the bomber is attacked by flying saucers and shot down. Mm -hmm. Now, Cap, who parachutes to safety, he's the only survivor. He meets up with his contact. Now, her name is Lior Eschel, and she is an attractive young agent of the Polish resistance. Concealed amid the wreckage of planes destroyed by the Nazi saucers, Cap and Lior survey the enemy camp. Cap gets a look at the SS commander known as Der Metzger. Do you know what that means, Bob? 
Uh, I don't. What does it mean? In German, that's the butcher. Ah. He's a huge German with a mechanical eye, and he has a scarred face because reportedly he received in a fight with a bear as a kid. With the sunrise, Cap discovers that work at the camp is done by hundreds of Jewish prisoners, which now leads him to expand the rescue mission to include the slave labor as well, because that's a very Cap thing to do. It sure is. At this point, they are ambushed by enemy troops and a flying saucer. Uh, unfortunately, Lior is disintegrated by the saucer's propulsion unit, and Cap comes face-to-face with the butcher. He hurls his shield, but the giant Nazi catches it, a la a MCU winter soldier, and knocks Cap out with a kick to the face. So Cap wakes up in a in a lab with a with a villain telling him that Lior has been forced to lead him into the trap by promises to release her captive family. And she didn't know that they had already been killed by that time. The Nazis had intercepted Dr. Fleischer's call for help and merely waited for the American super soldier to be delivered into their hands. Cap is locked uh, nearly naked in a cell and scheduled for vivisection on the next day. So there he meets Dr. Fleischer, who explains that he invented the flying saucers, uh, which work by a central power source creating a zero-point field, uh, which is hence the the story's title. And uh, he purposely withheld much of the information so that the Nazis had only three prototypes with limited range. The butcher is losing patience. He plans to kill Fleischer and reverse engineer the remaining secrets. Cap rips his chains out of the wall. He overpowers the guard. I think he kills him. Donning his Captain America costume, he breaks into the room containing the bell. Now, this is the the huge reactor which powers the saucers. So Cap leaves Fleischer to sabotage the device. And he actually does this by placing, he said, he said all I have to do is place one random thing in here and it'll ruin everything so he actually places an ss pin in the works how's that for irony uh and it creates a chain reaction and provides a major distraction uh you know cap does um by by running through the base taking out as many nazis as he can as quickly as possible how is he taking them out you might ask uh he's got a machine gun yes this is the world war ii captain america so he's the super soldier, right? Yeah. He's he's not the 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 superhero um, right. that we maybe grew up with. Um, so outside, Cap is pursued by two of the flying saucers. He leaps through the air, lands on one, pulls the pilot out, steers the saucer into the other one, leaping to safety as they both explode. He finds the butcher holding Fleischer captive and challenges him to a battle. After a brutal slugging match, which is a really, you know, a great fight scene, Cap tears out his opponent's mechanical eye, just rips it out, Bob, partially blinding him. And then Cap leads the scientist to safety. The butcher opens fire, mortally wounding Fleischer, who dies telling Cap he knew Abraham Erskine and wants his death to mean something too. Cap leads the Jewish prisoners to safety just as the butcher sees smoke billowing from the vents, 
warning him that he has no time to escape the explosion, which then destroys the camp. So with the destruction of its power source, the last saucer crashes to the ground. Watching this, Cap assures the spirit of Fleischer and Lior and the crew of the She-Devil that their deaths did mean something, a chance for tomorrow. Wow. Uh, so it was, a, it was a good story. It was a good action story, mm -hmm. uh, covered all the bases. I, I would say what I found interesting about it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of deaths in this comic. You know, sure. not something you typically see in, yeah. in Marvel comics during that time period. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it was um, Cap, you know, he, mm -hmm. you know, you mentioned that, um, you know, uh, the commie smasher. Yeah. You know, we he was acting in a way that we don't normally see Cap. But here we are in a time of war and Cap's a soldier. And he had to take people out with his machine gun. So um, that was a little interesting to me to yeah. see that uh, in, in Cap in that, you know, in that, in that manner. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, it, I mean, it's really reminiscent of, uh, of a golden age story, of a golden age, you know, <laughs> a fanciful, you know, Nazi technology uh, and uh, Cap in, in the theater of combat. And uh, so, I mean, the story, the narrative, very reminiscent Golden Age, but the quality of the art, obviously, Mitch Breitweiser takes it up to a whole different level. Uh, oh, and, and, and just the complexity of the story, of course, much more than you would ever encounter in, in a Golden Age story. So so it, it, it sort of bridges, you know, the Golden Age with, with modern comics. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's, yeah, I think it's kind of what's really interesting about several of these stories is that it manages to do that. So, you know, we see Cap in a way that we're not used to seeing Cap unless, you know, you're familiar with, with how he was in the Golden Age stories where, I mean, he would pick up any weapon and use it. Um, right. But in a, in a modern looking book. Yeah, and speaking of modern looking, um, I, I, I didn't mention the cover. So the cover is also by Mitch Breitweiser and it's Cap kind of like a bus shot of cap and he's running towards uh the viewer and behind him in this green glow are three ufos um almost look like they're chasing him he has a very angry look on his face um and uh, i actually know the owner of this art uh he was a guest on the show alberto gonzalez yeah, I mean, up to about a year ago, I don't know, maybe maybe even less than that, there were several pages from uh, this one shot still available for like 150 bucks. Well, the, the uh, cover was a lot more. Well, yeah, the uh, covers, of course, are, are yeah. a lot more. But I'm like, if anybody's interested, you know, I, I check, I mean, look around because they were still out there um, from Mitch Brett Weiser's uh, agent, you know, to, to pick up those those pages. All right, Bob, what's next? Which one do you want to cover? All right, so I think I'm going to do The Soldier On with mm. a cover date of October 2009, released in August 2009. So um, this is an interesting story, Rick, written by Paul Jenkins, who I think we're going to talk to here shortly. Oh, yeah, you know, we, we probably should mention that. Uh, Paul Jenkins, writer, uh, Eisner Award-winning writer, um, he, he did write four of these seven one-shots, so we thought it would be great to have him on next episode. So uh, we'll have to think of some questions uh, as we're going through here of uh, what we want to ask him, because 
um, it'll be the perfect opportunity to, to get the stories behind the story. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as I said, written by Paul Jenkins, pencils and inks by Fernando Blanco, colors by Marta Martinez, lettered by David Lamphere again. And, and I think the cover on this one was by Phil Noto, who I know you're a fan of, of Phil's work. Very much so. Yeah. So, Bob, before you get into your recap, um, would you like me to read the solicitation? I would, indeed. During the Battle of, for Baghdad, at the height of the Gulf War, a young army sergeant witnesses firsthand the heroism of a United States super soldier. But a life-altering event will lead him to question the very person he had idolized. Can the symbol of America's military might understand the plight of an ordinary soldier who has paid an unimaginable price? Well, I mean, you sort of hinted at it. You know, this story is a, a very powerful story, and it's one probably a lot uh, closer to, you know, the experience of, of many readers of, of comics these days. Um, you know, because of the, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan are much closer to home. We probably all know somebody who has uh, either served there or knows somebody who served there and knows somebody who was either killed or wounded in that theater. And so this book uh, really brings that home to uh, to readers. Yeah, we so should probably you mention that during this time when these stories were coming out, the Iraq war was still going on. Still going on. Yeah, yeah. So as you pointed out uh, in, the, in the solicitation, it takes place during the Battle of Baghdad in 2003. And, and there's a, a young U.S. Marine sergeant by the name of Brian Anderson. And he does get to witness uh, Cap in action, as does his whole squad. And, uh, and they're wowed, wowed by uh, his bravery, uh, his unflinching you know, courage, uh, his decision making in the heat of an, a very scary situation where they come under fire and, uh, and Cap pulls everybody's bacon at the risk of his own life. Um, and so, you know, he, he tends to look up to Cap as they all do, but things tend to progress in this story. And eventually, um, you know, you spend enough time in a, in a theater of combat like that, something's going to happen to somebody. Mm -hmm. and, and in this case, uh, uh, Sergeant Anderson is grievously wounded. And uh, he, he's not just, you know, it's not just a bullet wound, you know, flesh wound. This guy uh, lost uh, an arm and two legs, uh, which is a catastrophic injury. Mm -hmm. And you can imagine in his recovery, um, and it's a very difficult, emotionally draining and physically draining process. And along that way, Cap comes and visits him. And, and he's not at all happy with, with Cap. Uh, in fact, he blames uh, at least partially, if not substantially, his injuries on, on Cap because Cap was with his squad going through a very, very dangerous area. And um, he felt that Cap was maybe taking some risks that put others in danger because, hey, well, hey, Cap's got the super soldier serum, right? He's got great reflexes and strength. He heals quickly. You know, he, um, he's got great instincts and everybody else is just human. Right. And, and this and this terrible thing happens and IED goes off and, and Anderson is grievously wounded and Cap walks away without a scratch and, and he's mad. He's angry. Um, but we get to see in this story, we get to see Sergeant Anderson's progress, his evolution, his healing as he comes to terms with his injuries and he finds a way forward in his life. And he gets a chance at the end of the story uh, to interact with Cap again. And it's a very powerful scene because both of them 
I, I think, at least to me anyway, it seems both of them had a little bit of, of, of a realization about what actually happened. And, you know, for, for Anderson, um, I, I think he, you know, he realizes that like, there's nobody to blame, you know, except the enemy, of course, right? I mean, mm -hmm. Cap was doing what Cap does and, and the soldiers and the Marines were doing what the Marines were doing. And, and Cap tells him something that like, you know, when he first came to see him, he was sort of, he was upset that Cap was just, almost seemed cavalier. Like, you know, it was almost like the standard line that you tell a wounded soldier, we're proud of you, we're thinking of you, you know, uh, all that sort of stuff. But when he meets him again, Cap shares something with Anderson um, that I think is, 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 is canonical now, right? And that is the fact that Cap has this eidetic memory that yeah. he never forgets. He has perfect recall of everyone he's ever met. And that includes everyone he's ever met that has been injured or killed in combat. And, and Cap has to bear that. Uh, he has no choice. Rogers has, Steve Rogers has no choice but to carry that weight of memory with him decades I mean, you can imagine all the people that he has lost in decades. And so they both, I think, come to terms with each other and their loss because both of them have lost something in war. For right. Sergeant Anderson, it's, it's his physical capacity. But in another sense, he, he's, he's created a new life for himself and he's healed. But for Cap, he may be perfectly physical, but he carries this mourning with him. Uh, wherever he goes. And I think that's a really, really powerful story. Yeah, I agree. Thanks. Great job on the recap, Bob. I, ooh, it was a heavy story to read, um, ex especially since it it's based on this real Sergeant Anderson. Yeah. Uh, now, Sergeant Anderson goes on to have a good life. Um, you know, he becomes a spokesperson. He has a, you know, a good job. You know, he, he um, and I can't wait to talk to Paul about it because he dedicated, I believe, this story to him. Right. Right. That's right. And um, I want to know what inspired Paul to to write this story or, you know, how did he know this this person? Um, what information did he get from the person? How how close is this story to what really happened? I mean, obviously, Captain America wasn't there, but but how but the rest of it, you know, and, and um, you know, that kind of stuff fascinates me. Uh, because it was, it is a very, very heavy story. And, you know, I love the fact that, uh, you know, he, at, at some point Anderson, um, I think tries to flip cap the bird. Right. But, you know, he doesn't have, <laughs> he doesn't, doesn't have, have the hand. hand to do it. Right. Uh, <laughs> right. So, yeah. um, you know, there's, there's some humor in there too, because, you know, in the face of tragedy, you, you know, sometimes you, know, you have to use some humor to to, to, to lighten the mood. Um, so it was a wonderfully written story. Uh, I, 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 I just it, it it's it was touching. It was moving. It was heavy. And um, and there there are some points in there where you see Steve question himself, reminding us all that he's just as human as the rest of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and and I also want to talk to Paul about that uh, idemic memory because I don't recall seeing that before. I, I wonder if Paul wrote, you know, was he the one who came up with that? Because that's talk about heavy. I mean, yeah, right there. I mean, to, that to, to carry. I mean, he's seen so much war, so much, you know, in those five years during World War Two 
um, and then beyond that, it just, wow. Um, the other thing too, is it's, it's kind of like, um, I, I read somewhere once, um, and maybe it was Mark Wade. I don't remember, but you, you, you know, about writing Superman, right. In, 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 when you're writing Superman, he's so powerful that you can't break Superman, Mm -hmm. but you can break his heart. Yeah. And so to me, I think of that when Mm -hmm. I think of this idemic memory for, for Steve Rogers. Yeah. Right. Is like, you know, I mean, does that, does he become any, and, and I love the fact that, you know, take, take, uh, any person who, who's, uh, in a caregiver role, you know, as far as like a healthcare professional, you know, a a doctor's nurses who see, see people dying, you know, all the time. Um, and, they have to grow some sort of barrier there, yeah. right? To protect themselves. You know, that's why I could never do that type yeah. of job. I, I, I just, I, I have the greatest respect for people who, who can. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm, and I'm certainly not saying healthcare professionals, you know, are cold or anything like that. It's not what I'm saying. No, I'm just no. saying that, you know, it's human nature to, to try to, Pull yourself away from something and distance yourself something to protect yourself and we don't see steve rogers doing that yeah well i think um two two things i am i i throw this out there it's a little bit of a tangent but i i, I think of, of many professions veterinary doctors are uh, have among the highest suicide rates uh, really i never heard of, that yeah because of the emotional burden that they bear from you know they put so many animals down that it can become uh, heartbreaking. Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, I had uh, I had one of my animals uh, put down recently, a couple of years ago, um, and and the, and the doctor who did that um, committed suicide. Uh, oh my goodness! Three months later. Now I'm not saying it's because of you know, because of the situation in my family, but it's a. It, I've known many veterinarians who have killed themselves uh, in my work through the Humane Society, and it's it's an extremely heavy burden that they carry. And I don't think it's possible to ever put up a wall. I mean, I think this is why you know healthcare providers and and, and all these people who who put themselves in those sorts of situations to me are such heroes um, mm-hmm. every much uh, if not more so than than, than guys that, that serve in, in, in combat because they carry that burden for decades at a time uh, working with patients and in, in, in nursing homes and, and all these places and, mm-hmm. and the loss is horrendous now for cap I would say you know it's it's interesting because it's it's like two sides of a coin right on one side, uh, he's got this perfect eidetic memory that allows him to remember every combat operation he's ever seen, everyone he's ever studied. He, that's what makes him the perfect tactician, right? Because he can run through all. It's like it's like if I can use a football metaphor, you know, it's like having it's like having a quarterback who knows all the plays that have ever been played, right? Uh huh. Oh, can, you, now, now I got you. Yeah, yeah, right. But the flip side of that is he can't forget any face that he's ever seen and lost. Yeah. So, you know, it's uh it's a, it's, it's a powerful thing to think about. And I, and I applaud Jenkins for, uh, for coming up with that. I think it's a great, uh, if heartbreaking addition to, to the canon. Yeah. I can't wait to, to talk to him about that. All right, Rick, what do you got up next? Well, speaking of Jenkins, I want to do 
brother, a brother in arms. Uh, this one had a cover date of June 2009, release date April 29th, 2009. And, um, you know, while we're on the subject of Mitch Breitweiser as artist, he did the cover for this one. It's a pretty cool cover of, of Cap throwing his shield at the uh, at the viewer. Um, and as I said before, written by Paul Jenkins, uh, the interior art penciled by John McCrea, inked by James Hodkins, colorist Andrew Elder, letterer Dave Lamp here, and uh, Tom Brevoort as uh, the executive editor. Would you like to hear the so solicitation for this? I one? sure would, Rick. I can't do that, Bob. I there know. is no solicitation. I know. It's, it's, a, it's a crying shame. It really is. But I can give you a recap, Bob. Well, I will settle for that. Okay. Uh, so, March 25th, 1945, Captain America leads a mission of paratroopers from the 2nd Ranger Battalion on a perilous mission to drop inside Germany, secure a dam, holding against the enemy until reinforcements arrive. Landing near the dam, several rangers are assigned to dismantle the bombs placed by the Germans to destroy the structure should it be threatened, while others undertake to capture the guard's pillbox. Now, Bob, you want to describe to the listeners what a pillbox is? Sure. It's a, it's, it's a bunker emplacement. So generally, it's, uh, it's dug in uh, with maybe only a third of it above ground. And usually it's got some slit windows that you can fire your weapons through, but it's, it's designed to provide a, a fortified place for the emplacement of, of, uh, automatic weapons, usually crew serve like a, like a machine gun. Mm -hmm. And it's usually like cement, yeah. right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's really heavy for, yeah. Heavily there's still fortified. some, there's like, uh, you know, I, I, I lived and worked in Vietnam. There's still like, uh, pillboxes that were left over from the French Vietnamese war, uh, wow. along the, on the, along the road. So they last. So in caps, uh, Rangers here, there's a corporal Molodek and, uh, the team is spotted by a guard and an alarm is sounded losing the element of surprise cap leads the assault on the pillbox, bringing a soldier close enough to toss a grenade inside Molodek and others opened fire on fleeing Germans with some American casualties as well. Inside the pillbox is the sole surviving German soldier who surrenders. An angry Molodek wants to shoot him down, but is stopped by Captain America, who reminds him of the Geneva Convention rules regarding prisoners of war. Cap questions the prisoner, and his name is Claus Hartman. And he's regular army. He's not a Nazi. And he advises him to comply with the rules as well for his own safety. Word of German reinforcements come and Cap leaves Molodef to guard the prisoner while he leads the Rangers against the oncoming tanks. Now, that was a risk on Cap's part because, again, Molodek did not agree with with cap about uh, the geneva convention and you know that this is a guy who who killed a couple of Maldex friends and um he wants revenge but cap leaves him in charge of him cap's uh, agility allows the americans to capture one of the tanks and then they maneuver it to destroy the other tank the rangers then discovered that the german reinforcements are waffen ss and know they will be in for a fight now bob explain Explain to the the listeners what what is the 
the big deal about the the Waffen SS? Well, those those I, I, I I'm not a I'm not a German um, you know order of order of uh, order of March expert, but the the Waffen SS, if I'm not mistaken, were the were the the hardcore stormtroopers of the yes. Nazi party. They're 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 the bad guys with the Death Head uh, logo. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Captain America meets with the Nazi leader Hermann Weitel under a flag of truce to arrange for turning the wounded Hartman over to his own people. And Vital refuses and orders his troops to fire on Cap. So the living legend exerts all his speed to make it back to the American emplacement under covering fire by the Rangers. Word then comes that the American armored regiment had been held up and will not be able to relieve them soon. So Hartman apologizes to Captain America for the Nazi vital, expressing despair at how his country was so easily deceived by Hitler and his thugs. As Hartman has some medical training, Cap releases him, and Maladek, of course, is protesting, to help treat the American wounded. The Nazis attack and press the salt through the night. Hartman proves himself a hero by saving the lives of several wounded and then he collapses from his own injuries. Meanwhile, in the German camp, the army commander, Lieutenant Huber, arrives and he berates Vital for refusing to accept the return of a wounded soldier and for firing on an American officer under a flag of truce. Huber heads to the American line and negotiates the return of Hartman, who salutes Captain America as he leaves. On their way back to the German side, Ruber and Hartman shot down on orders from Vital. Over the next few days, the Americans hold off German assaults until the armored regiments arrive. Cap leads only 14 survivors. Vital and several of his men are taken prisoner, and Corporal Molodek is last seen kneeling by the body of Klaus Hartman. So... Wow. It, it a heavy story, yeah. Uh, but I really enjoyed it, Bob. I, yeah. I really enjoyed. Um, there's a, there's a scene in there where Cap is talking to to Mulladek and he's reciting. I don't know if it's like chapter and verse, but he's reciting like the Geneva Convention and and the you know the 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 rules yeah. of of war and saying you know every time Mulladek said something, he'd come back with another quote or something mm -hmm. and it was just um it was really interesting i'd never seen uh cap do that before and so it was a it was a really cool uh take on 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 the super soldier um but overall the story is really one of dehuman i mean like humanizing the end yeah i should yeah. say yeah right and, 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 you know, the, the, those Captain America comics in the 40s were were all about dehumanizing. Sure were, enemy, yeah. Right? Because it was, yeah. it was, in a way, war propaganda, right? It was a way to, you know, before the United States um, actually went into World War II, Captain America comics came out. And, um, you know, dehumanize the enemy makes it easier for the American citizens to agree for our country to go to war. And this was the opposite of that. Uh, and it showed also 
a different way that, you know, not all Germans were Nazis, right? Yeah. Not all German soldiers, I should say, were Nazis. Right. Many of the German soldiers were just, you know, people who loved their homeland and wanted to defend it, uh, you know, against against invaders. And um, and and it was interesting to see the difference between the two. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was a great story. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. No, I think it's a great story, too. And uh, one, I got to give I got to give Paul Jenkins uh, credit because, you know, he does his research. Uh, and yes. he knows he knows what he's when he's writing about whether it's it's the, the locations of the battles and you know the order of march and just down to things like the the Geneva Conventions language you know he know he knows his stuff so that that's number one and number two is and I applaud him for for taking a difficult subject particularly if you think about 2009 now we've been at war for uh, since 2000 you know for eight years since since 9-11 uh we're in war in two places and uh dehumanizing the enemy is part and parcel of of what populations tend to do when they're mm-hmm. in combat and there was no shortage of that going on after 9-11 and during our time in Iraq. And of course, there, it's not, you know, there are other programs that were in place. I, I was in some of those programs, you know, that were meant to be, uh, uh, you know, cultural bridges, that sort of thing. But they were a drop in the bucket compared to, um, you know, just it's a natural tendency. It helps, you know, part of it is it's structured so that you don't question what you're doing. And another part right. of it is, is it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a self insulation to help you deal with what you're doing uh, to the people on the other side of, of your rifle. Right. And so this was, uh, you know, right now, looking back, it's, it's what 2024 we're reading this, we're reading about a, a world war II story, but really I got to think that Jenkins is, is, is commenting upon something else as well. And and maybe we'll get a chance to ask him that, but I would be curious if, um, you know, this is a perennial universal challenge of soldiers, regardless of what side they're on to not look at their enemy as an animal. Uh, because in some instances, they're just people who were enlisted in the army or conscripted in the army through no fault or no choice of their own, right. as they were in Nazi Germany, as they are now in places like Russia, uh, in Ukraine, and in other parts of the world. And, and they have no agency but to do the bidding of, of their leadership. And we all have to take a moment to remember that uh, and remember that can i tell you a little little story rick yeah please do all right so you know i i worked in vietnam for for three and a half years as the Mm -hmm. marine and naval attache and 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 i remember um some of my first conversations with uh the folks that i dealt with in, in the people's army of vietnam which of course we we battled for many many years during the vietnam war not me personally obviously but 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 americans and and i remember um U.S. vets coming over, and I remember uh, taking them out and giving them tours, and and I recall seeing the reaction that the Vietnamese citizenry gave them, and, and the military and, and political leaders, they embraced them, and and at one point I said, "What's going on?" I mean, like this is not what I expected. First of all, I didn't expect it to be treated 
as I was treated when I came in the country, embraced and accepted and, and mm -hmm. treated as a friend, but, but certainly the vets, I, you know, and I'm sure it surprised them. And I remember on many occasions being told that we, we look at these vets as our brothers because they didn't have any choice. Most of them any more than we did, you know, they were sent to war by, by Johnson and Nixon and, and, uh, and, um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank on the on the on the Secretary of Defense, but in any case, um, you know they were as much victims as we were, and now that's past, and what's what we have now is now in the future, and and we treat each other like brothers and family, and that's how we move forward, and and that just I remember how like emotional I was when I heard that, and mm -hmm. that is what I get in this story, to to always remember that, yeah. No, that's a good point. Thanks for sharing that, Bob. I, I think I was the whole point to to Paul Jenkins. You know, I mean, the the title of the story is a brother in arms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, there's a there is a brotherhood, uh, no matter what side of the line that you're on. So, all right, Bob. We we got we got four down and three to go. W which one are you doing next? All right, I'm gonna do Ghosts of My Country. Rick. Okay. So cover date, December, 2009, released two months uh, earlier in October, 2009, again, written by Paul Jenkins. Uh, this one, however, pencils and inks by Leah Bonetti, uh, colors by George Mays, uh, lettered by Jared Fletcher. And I think the cover on this one was by Butch Geis and Frank Darmada. So um, good, good, interesting, very different type of Captain America book than I think anything that I have ever read before and probably ever will. So do you have a synopsis, a solicita solicitation on that? Why, yes, Bob, there is a solicitation. And this one reads, Paul Jenkins' mythos run on Theater of War comes to a close. In this, his most personal and poignant tale of the legacy of Captain America. From America's first Independence Day through wars that nearly tore the country apart, to the rebirth of a nation, the spirit of Captain America has always been with us, and no one embodies that better than Steve Rogers. Now, I just want to point out, during this time, um, in in 2009 and, and 2008, when, when these stories were coming out, Steve Rogers was dead in the pages of... of you know, Captain America, yeah, the Ed Brubaker point. volume. Um, he had he was killed in, in issue 25, and then he was gone for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, the story continued with Bucky becoming the new Captain America. You know, for those who haven't read the Ed Brubaker run, go do it. Do yourself a favor. It was amazing writing uh, and beautiful art, too. Um, but, yeah, there has been no Steve Rogers for a while. And so I, I think Part of the reason um, Marvel wanted to do this, maybe Tom Brevoort wanted to do this, was, you know, there was a void out there for people yeah. who, who love Steve Rogers. Now, they did um, do the uh, the the Captain America Reborn miniseries mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that came out in July of 2009. So so basically for the first eight months that the these one shots were coming out, we did not have a Steve Rogers. Yeah. Uh, so I just want to I thought it's worth pointing out as, as you're about to get into this story. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's a good point. This is filling a need <laughs> you mm -hmm. know, for people who have an appetite. 
So, you know, as, as I, as I, uh, as I alluded to earlier, Rick, this, this book is a bit of an outlier. Um, so, because unlike a typical cap story with protagonists, antagonists, you know, and three different sort of, you know, twists and turns in a book, it, this story presents a love letter, I think anyway, from Paul Jenkins to the United States and to cap, uh, but in the form of really a poem. So beginning with uh, the Continental Congress in the summer of 1776 and crossing uh, through time across six other lengthy historical vignettes, uh, and these include the shelling of Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor, as witnessed by Francis Scott Key, uh, the Battle of New Orleans in 1815, where Andrew Jackson uh, and the Tennessee and Louisiana and Kentucky militia fought off one of the last British assaults of the War of 1812, which incidentally, this one occurred after the Treaty of Ghent had already been signed, but not ratified. Um, another one is the U.S. Civil War Battle of Alatoona Pass in Bartow County, Georgia in October 1864, where this very small outgunned federal garrison held out against a vastly greater Confederate uh, assault. And then we jump forward to the Ardennes Forest in Belgium and Luxembourg, uh, where the uh, Battle of the Bulge took place in 1945. Skips ahead again to the Vietnam's Idrang Valley, where um, and this was in November 1965, where that first really major battle of the Vietnam War against the People's Army of Vietnam, the, really the first offensive of a ground army versus a ground army took place in this valley. And you might remember there was a, there was a book uh, by Hal Moore and Joseph Galloway called We Were Soldiers Once and young, and it was made in a movie by Mel Gibson. That was really cool. Had Barry Pepper in it as well. Oh, that uh, was a book? Yeah, that was a, a great book. Really great book, Rick. Yeah, believe it or not. Did it have pictures? It had, uh, it had, uh, it had uh, like about, yeah, 10 pages of pictures in the middle. Yeah. Oh. Really okay. good. Very uh, real tearjerker. A lot of folks lost their lives on both sides in that uh, battle. Uh, and it really was a harbinger of things to come in Vietnam. And then finally, that last lengthy vignette is the heroism of first responders during the collapse of the Twin Towers in Manhattan on September 2001. And then there's like a bunch of shorter vignettes. There's the landing on Omaha Beach during World War II, the moonwalk in July 1969, a cap marching with uh, MLK Jr. in the civil rights movement in the South. Um, we see the Iwo Jima Memorial in Arlington, Virginia, we see Cap rendering honors at a baseball game. And then finally, we see a scene uh, at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier uh, in Arlington National uh, Cemetery. And what's really interesting is we see all these vignettes strung together. And we see uh, in text balloons this poem being composed by John Adams and Francis Scott Key and on and on and on as we see the horrors and the gallantry of war. Uh, we see patriotism being lived out. We see all the things you know that we take for granted as mm -hmm. being part of the American dream and Cap's ghost is there all along. Uh, and so I think what Jenkins is saying is that uh, not only does he see Cap as a reflection of what America aspires to be, but America also is a reflection of what Cap aspires to be. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful testament both to the American dream and to Cap interwoven in a very poetic way. And it's it's unique in anything that I, I've ever read in a Marvel comic. Well said. Uh, great recap. You're right. It was very different than anything else out there. Um, and I think for the typical Marvel fan, the typical Captain America fan, it probably 
was not what they were looking for, right? I mean, Steve Rogers had been dead for a couple of years. They want to see, you know, some some action stories. They want to see, uh, you know, Steve winning the day um, somehow, overcoming bad odds, what, whatever the case may be. So this was really, really different. And um, but it was it was cool. I mean, it was it was, you know, you got to see pieces of, of history. Um, and I know you're a history buff. Uh, I, I I'm not as big a history buff as you are, but it was it was cool to see these different scenes play out. And I, I liked and respected the way Paul Jenkins got them all woven together. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, because he's a Brit. I know, right? Right. <laughs> so I want to ask him that. I want to yeah. ask him, like, like, was it difficult uh, writing from a American point of view during the Revolutionary War? <laughs> you know, yeah. um, you know, was it was it challenging? Was it difficult? I I, I want to see what he has to say. Yeah, and there, I mean, there's there's a couple couple scenes in in this book that are um, violence and uh, disturbing. Um, and yet if I was a, uh, you know, if I was a middle school teacher or maybe a high school teacher, I would love, you know, a history teacher, maybe I would love to have my class, you know, read this during one class because it does challenge you, uh, to think about all these historical, uh, events. Uh, and it doesn't, you know, it does give a course, you know, where the incident is taking place and you have to read a little bit into it. And if you're not familiar with history, you got to look it up and see what the context is. And I think that's a great, a great thing for young readers to be challenged to do while they're, uh, while they're reading a cap. So we, we had this discussion with um, uh, Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing about interwoving real history in narrative, because not only do you get entertainment, but you get a little bit of, of information, a little bit of knowledge that maybe you didn't have before. And you're challenged if you're interested and intrigued to dig a little bit deeper. And that right there is, is the golden ring as far as I'm concerned. And so I love books like this that take real history and interweave it into a cap thing. Excellent. Well, that, that brings me to, to my last one, uh, which is America, the beautiful. And so talk about weaving history into the story. Um, now, this one had a cover date of March 2009, released in January 21st. And uh, like I said, Paul Jenkins is the writer. Um, penciler is Gary Erskine, anchor Gary Erskine. Now, he he uh, he did the, the cover, I think, to one of the other ones I did. America um, first. Yeah. yeah. Uh, colorist is Chris Sotomayor, letterer Dave Lampier, and editor Janine Schaefer. And then uh, at, uh, executive editor Tom Brevoort. Shall I read the solicitation, Bob? Oh, yeah. The third in a series chronicling the adventures that made Captain America the hero we know today. Paul Jenkins does what he does best, weaving a tale of war, brotherhood, and legacy. From skinny Steve Rogers at boot camp to the super soldier leading a battalion of men against the Nazis, this is the Captain America you thought you knew, but you've never seen. And when the choice is between his country or his best friend, this is the decision he had to make. Whoa. Well, that pulls you in. It sure does. 
All right. So I am going to, again, going to marvelhistorylibrary.com. I'm going to read their synopsis, which I thought was dead on. Captain America arrives on the beach in Normandy, France, in response to an urgent summons he had requested decades earlier. French workers were excavating a tunnel dynamited by the Germans during the war and found it larger than expected. Cap is directed to an access tunnel where he pauses to collect himself before entering. Inside a utility room, he finds the skeleton of an American soldier, Private Bobby Shaw of Pasadena, Texas. He says a prayer and arranges for the body to be returned to the United States for burial to fulfill a promise he had made 60 years ago. A soldier asks who Shaw was that Captain America requested to recover his body personally, and Cap replies, he was me. I'm going to pause here for a second. I did, I did really like the fact that Cap said a prayer, and he, he, he like quoted a prayer. Talk about an endemic memory. He 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 was able to, you know, sounds like he was quoting a prayer by verse, and it was a very lengthy one. Uh, I had not seen Steve Rogers slash Captain America recite a prayer before, so mm -hmm. that was also new for me. Yeah. Um, and uh, I can't wait to ask Paul about that. Like, where did that come from? Because um, it, it was that was really interesting. Now he says he was me. Now. Now that brings you, you know, that pulls you in. Like, what, what, what are you, what are you talking about here? Yeah. Flashback to Fort Lehigh in 1941. Private Bobby Shrimpy Shaw was the company screw up, unable to handle the rigors of training, or to remember the steps in the various drills. Bob, do you ever have anybody like that in in any of your your yeah, uh, yeah me troops or oh really? Yeah. <laughs> were yeah, you the I... the year of the company screw up? Well, I wouldn't say I was the screw up, but uh, uh, I mean, you've seen that. Have you seen that? Uh, I've sometimes I post I posted it once or twice on Facebook. It's a picture of me from Naval Proceedings magazine where I'm doing I'm like in the push up. No, mm -hmm. no, that's that's the second picture on on the next page. The the picture is me standing there getting yelled at by like two uh, of mm -hmm. my drill sergeants. Yeah, so you know I've been I've been there. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So. Steve Rogers, secretly Captain America, tried to help Bobby any way he could, but that frequently resulted in Steve sharing Bobby's punishment, and he's doing KP duty and other things. One night, as they're assigned to KP duty together, Bobby shares his dream of buying a home near a body of water where he could settle down with a beautiful girl. As the war progresses, Captain America serves his country with acts of heroism while keeping tabs on Bobby Shaw. In Sicily, Cap is with the infantry when they are pinned down by enemy fire. Shaw is missing and is soon spotted cowering in fear on the other side of the street. Cap braves a hail of German bullets to reach Bobby and encourage him to do what's right. He heads back across the street, but the terrified Bobby remains where he is. Now in the present, Cap takes Bobby's last letter home to his mother, who is now deceased, from the dead man's pocket, and in a brief ceremony, he announces a uh, po posthumous promotion and presents a purple heart to the skeleton. The confused soldier again questions Captain, who explains that Bobby Shaw was the worst soldier in the history of the United States, mm -hmm. but the bravest man Cap ever knew. That seems to be an oxymoron. 
Cut to a flashback. Cap arranged for Bobby to be transferred to the Big Red One. Now, what's the Big Red One, Bob? That's the first first infantry division, if I'm not mistaken, right? Where and he was sent to England to await the invasion. So there, he covered his shyness about talking to women by claiming he had a more beautiful girl back home. And Cap has Bobby assigned to be at his side as the U.S. Army storms Omaha Beach on D-Day. At the last minute, Bobby confesses that he can't swim. So Cap has to make sure the hapless GI makes it to the beach without drowning, as well as being shot. Cap leaves the terrified Bobby cowering in a shelter and heads on to his main mission. Soldiers are pinned down by enemy fire and Cap has to clear the way for them to reach the cliff base. The living legend pushes through the hail of bullets to reach some men in a foxhole, but discovers the field telephone had been broken. He turns and sees Bobby Shaw following him. Now, the young soldier blindly ran after Cap and couldn't stop. He also seemed to forget his gear and his rifle and his backpack and everything. Now, from their position, they could see an access tunnel in the cliff. So Cap sends Bobby back to inform the rest of the unit while he goes on ahead to battle the guards. The soldiers reach the tunnel and enter in the face of gunfire. Uh, and by the way, when when Bobby turns and leaves, like at first he's like, I'm not going back there, you know, but he ends up running and I think he, he gets shot and shot in the rear. So they discover the tunnel is mined as the commander is killed. Panicking, Bobby hides in the utility room. Cap orders him to try to reach the enemy position from the flank, but Bobby is too scared. Now, a German hurls a grenade at the Americans, but Bobby rushes forward and kicks the bomb away, and he is critically injured by the explosion. Cap carries the wounded Bobby to the utility room and promises to come back for him, but Bobby, he knows this is the end. Cap hustles the other GIs out of the tunnel just moments before the explosives detonate. So we cut to modern time and in a memorial service for Bobby Shaw, attended by military personnel and superheroes, Cap pays tribute to the fallen hero who died that others might live free. Of all the heroes he'd known, Bobby was the bravest. And he then drops Bobby's dog tags into the water the water he'd always dreamed of, besides the most beautiful girl, and that was the Statue of Liberty. Wow. How touching That's uh, awesome. uh, ending is that, right? Yeah, yeah. Nicely tied up with a bow. Yeah. Got a little choked up there. I, uh, yeah. That, when I read that story, I was that was really touching, really yeah. moving. And I, I, I love the fact that, uh, you know, <laughs> it, he was the, the biggest coward and Cap called him the biggest, you know, coward, the biggest screw up. Yeah. But he said he was the bravest man he knew. And and why did he say that? Well, did do did, did you do the bravest thing um, that Cap's ever seen? No. But Bobby Shaw did a brave thing. And for a person who was as big a coward as he was, that was huge. And I think the story is that, you know, all of us uh, are screw ups in one way or another, but we all when, you know, hopefully when the moment 
comes our time that that we can do the right thing that that even Bobby could do. Yeah, yeah, I think that uh, that rings true. That definitely rings true. I think the thing that struck me about this story is one of the things that uh, that I've learned over the years, you know, through obviously studying, but my my background is that you can never tell how somebody will respond when the chips are down. You know, that doesn't just mean combat, but it means in real life, you know, it means in our backyard, you know, in our schools, in our neighborhoods, it doesn't matter, right? And we, we have this sense that macho equates to, uh, to courage and bravery. Sometimes right. it equates to foolhardiness. And, and the thing about Steve is, uh, at least now anyway, uh, and he recognizes this, is that he is the beneficiary of, of the super soldier serum. Um, he's faster and stronger and more capable than a guy like Bobby Shaw, who is a screw up and is weak and scrawny. Uh, but when the chips were down, Bobby did what it had to do to protect uh, those around him. Yep. Uh, and that's not something you can ever predict. Um, it can be surprising, um, but you can't predict it. And, and I think that's one of the most amazing things that I love about this story is that a guy like Bobby Shaw, who you expect to be, you know, a weight, a burden, uh, is the guy that saves people's lives, despite mm -hmm. his fear um, and despite his weakness. Uh, and despite the hopes that he had for his own life, which he sacrificed in that split second momentary decision when no one else did. Uh, and I love that about this story. And I think Paul Jenkins gets that about the, the great mystery of heroism, that mm -hmm. it can be anybody at any time um, can step up and be the hero. And, and we don't always know who that's going to be. Yep. Well put. And, I, and the other thing that hits home with this story is, is a lot like um, to soldier on, you know, this one is dedicated to a, a real person. And so at the very end of this story, there are two pictures uh, from uh, the soldiers here. And it says, dedicated with respect and admiration to my friend, J. Douglas Huggins, electrician's mate of the USS St. Louis, and to his childhood friend, musician, second class, Bobby Shaw of Pasadena, Texas, who perished on the USS Arizona on December 7th, 1941. So, uh, you know, we'll have to talk to, to Paul about that, that, that yeah. there's gotta be, a, you know, he says his friend, uh, right. So want to hear all about, uh, how he got these stories and, and, you know, how it went on to, to create this story. Yeah. We got to hear his inspiration because uh, he's written some beautiful stuff here. Yep. All right, Bob, last one. Already? Oh, my. It goodness. is. All right. Prisoner of Duty, Rick. Uh, cover date, February 2010. Released December 2009. Written by Kyle Higgins and Alex Siegel. Pencils and ink by Augustin Padilla. Colors by Giola Brusco. Lettered by Jared Fletcher. And the cover by Mirko P Pierre Federici. So this is a great story too, Rick. Uh, it takes place during um, 
in the weeks following World War II's Operation Market Garden, which was fought by the Allies in Nazi-held territory in the Netherlands in September 1944. So again, fairly late in the war. And it was a terrible defeat for the Allies. Paratrooper operations, they got cut off. The Nazis overtook them. They had to be extracted. It was a disaster. So apparently during this operation, Steve Rogers was wounded and captured by the enemy while he was trying to protect his company's retreat. So mind you, he's not in his cap attire. He is Private mm -hmm. Steve Rogers and he's captured. He wakes up in a hospital bed within the walls of Dritten Castle, which is like 50 miles behind the enemy lines. And the first person he meets is this German nurse by the name of Amelia Becker, whom he learns from her just chit-chatting that she had lived in New York City before the war, but had come back to Germany. So Steve is immediately suspicious, right? He's not going to talk to her because he knows the rules of conduct, the law of conduct when you're a POW and you don't share information about yourself. But he's suspicious of her because she speaks like fluent English and she appears to have a fondness for the United States. But she clearly returned to Germany at the outbreak of the war and now she's working for the Nazis. So a little bit later, he learns that there's about 20 other U.S. service members being held as POWs at this castle under the watchful eyes of the Commandant, Strasbourg. And the Commandant promises Steve that he's going to be treated well as long as he promises not to escape. And Steve tells him one shouldn't make promises in war. Mm. So once Steve recovers sufficiently from his wounds, he starts making plans to escape from the prison, not just for himself, but for all the POWs. So one night he breaks out of his prison cell and he conducts a recon of the village outside of the castle walls before he comes back later that evening, returning to his cell. But while he's out, he stumbles upon Fraulein Becker's house. And when he sees her tending her elderly parents, including her apparently ailing father, he realizes that, wow, maybe she's not as much of an enemy as he thought and that she had another story. She's just as he says, a girl who came back to help her family. And he begins to see her as another person trapped in this no-win situation of a war. Mm -hmm. So the next time she's tending his wounds, he tells her, and I love this quote, we all have duties, Amelia, sacrifices we have to make for the things we love. But I guess that's how we know we love them. And she's grateful for the kindness of this implicit recognition and acknowledgement of her unhappy position. So after some additional narrative twists and turns, Steve leads the POWs on an escape from the castle. And as they're making their way through the village to the woods beyond, they stumble across the Commandant, Strasbourg, emerging from Nurse Becker's home, where apparently he just had dinner with her family. So Steve manages to knock out the Commandant before he can raise the alarm. And to her credit, Becker remains silent. Nevertheless, Nazi soldiers show up and they start firing at the escaping POWs. And just before Steve leaves, he promises that he will return for her and her family. So the epilogue of this story takes place about two weeks later. And Steve, now he's got his cap uniform on. He returns with the allies to the village and he starts looking for Nurse Becker and her family. But all he finds is the bombed out remains of her family home. And he remembers at that point his earlier declaration to the Commandant Strasbourg about not making any promises in war. So I, I love this story, uh, Rick, not least because we get to see Steve as Steve, but there's some great action scenes that we, we get to see his persistence and determination in the face of challenges. But I also like seeing how his attitudes towards uh, Nurse Becker evolve when he gets to know her backstory. It shows how Steve is willing to evaluate what he believes when he's presented with new information. And if it warrants it, changing his beliefs. So, I mean, how radical is that? 
Now we don't get a particularly happy ending, but we get a realistic one. And it tells us something about the horrors of war and how it impacts other people. Steve had little choice what he did here, right? As long as he fulfilled his duty uh, um, and Nurse Becker did, they were both going to be essentially victimized by this war. Both were in fact prisoners of duty. Steve had to get those POWs out to safety and Nurse Becker had to stay and protect her family. And they both pay prices for it. So I love this. I uh, love this story, Rick. I'm sorry. You, you lost me when you said Steve was checking out Nurse Becker's backstory. <laughs> well, we all, we got to be careful. Uh, you can't spend too much time checking out, you know, a nurse's backstory. So. Yeah. So, so what I am learning here is Steve's more of a, a backstory kind of guy. Well, I think, yeah, I think Steve and I both would be. Yeah. <laughs> uh no, well put. Well put, Bob. And I, I think your points are 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 absolutely great. Uh and I love the fact that you're right. Steve, when presented with new information, was uh, you know, made a, a, a different, you know, viewpoint um and changed his mind, which um, you know, hey, we all should consider doing that, right? Every now and, and, again. and and be yeah. open to to other viewpoints and and the fact that uh Maybe our misconceptions are not exactly, uh, you know, accurate. Um, yeah, it was a good story. I uh, and it was, um, it was interesting to see that commandant, um, you know, was fairly, fairly fair, decent, to, benign. Yeah, yeah. To you know, he wasn't like this really nasty person. Like yeah. the only time he he did anything was when you know, Steve kind of got out of hand and started punching soldiers and everything. And he was like, oh, well, all right, we'll put him in solitaire and, yeah. you, know, you know, beat him first. So, yeah. um, you know, but uh, unlike the butcher, you know, who is right. just a, yeah. just an evil, evil person. And I'm surprised I looked it up and uh, no one has brought back the butcher. Uh, huh. We didn't see him die. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, so if, um, if there's any, you know, writers out there, you know, you're looking to do a, a, a cap piece. I mean, it'd be, I don't know. You'd be an interesting character to bring back from the dead. Yeah. Why not? I'm, I'm game. I'm game, Rick. Let's do it. All right. Yeah. So Bob, um, <clears throat> we, uh, we, we went a little long here, but, uh, you know, that's what happens. You have seven, seven stories to cover. Seven stories. Uh, and we wanted to do each one of them justice. Um, let's do a, uh, you know, our, our typical uh, favorite panel T-shirt worthy and time capsule. All right, I think you go first this time, Rick. I think I do. Yeah. Um, so I, I am going to go with my favorite panel is um, for America, the beautiful, in uh, that last page mm. uh, with the Statue of Liberty. I, that's my favorite of all of these stories because it did. It was a nice twist at the end. Uh, you didn't see that coming. Uh, and it was it tugged on the heartstrings a little bit. And uh, and then it had that really nice dedication and it had uh, actual photos of, of, of the two soldiers. Um, yeah, by far, by far. That was my favorite, my favorite panel from uh, all the stories. How about you? Excellent, excellent. I'm going to go with... Um... 
you know, I'm wearing off the trade pub here. So it's on page 16 uh, of To Soldier On. And it's the first panel on the upper left side. And it's it's Cap and a Marine gunnery sergeant. And and uh, the, the gunnery sergeant, they just did a, like a, a gas, you know, uh, a poison gas drill. And, and the Marines couldn't find their gas masks. And, and, the, and Cap and, and the gunny walk in. And Cap says, you know, if this was a real thing, you'd be dead. And, and the gunny says, you know, he offers to kill all the Marines right there to save the enemy the trouble. <laughs> and Cap very laconically, you know, responds, not right now, Sergeant. And, and I love that panel. I mean, it's just like a throwaway little panel, funny little panel. Mm-hmm. But to me, like, I've lived that uh, mm-hmm. with, with the gunny and the, and the officer, me, you know, just like, no, not right now, gunny. You don't rip their eyeballs out and, and poop down their neck. You know, let's just hold off on that. So for me, there was like a lot of my personal experience in that panel, and it really spoke to me. So I, that's going to be my panel. I love it. No, that's cool. That's yeah. very cool. I like to hear that. Uh, what about uh, what do you put on a T-shirt, Bob? All right. Well, it is uh, from Ghosts of My Country. So page 11, and it's actually a full page splash of Cap, uh, the ghost of Cap superimposed over the flag flying over Fort McHenry in Baltimore Harbor. So full mm. page, beautiful, beautiful rendering uh, of a ghostly cap in the foreground mm-hmm. with, with the flag still flying at dawn's early light in the background looks great on a t-shirt i'm absolutely sure of it yeah no nice choice i would yeah. i would get that t-shirt what about yourself rick i'm gonna you mentioned before that uh, i like phil noto and uh yeah i do he's 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 a, a great artist uh i love his drawings um and his colors and just uh, his whole style his technique i love the cover to to soldier on um so i i am putting the the cover to the soldier on uh, on a t-shirt all right and, and without the trade dress just just the image that right. Noto did yeah yeah all right and how about a time capsule that's tough that's really tough i mean uh but i'm to gonna from here. uh you know what i'm i am going to pick america the beautiful the whole comic the whole okay. comic's going in in the time capsule wow because uh, it just it it really picks up um, on, you know, what happened in Normandy. Um, and I don't know, there's a lot of history to it. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact, like, again, there's the pictures of the two soldiers are there and it's dedicated to to them. Um, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I, maybe it's a cop out, but I'm doing that. That's cool. That's cool. I like that. I like what about that. you? What's going on in your time? You know, I, I'm going with... Uh... From America First, the the little the little vignette where uh, Howard Chaikin talks a little bit about uh, Burnside's backstory, and he mentions the Lee Academy. So anybody who's read any Golden Age books, whether it's in the 40s or the 50s, would know the Lee School is where uh, Captain America, at this point Jeff Mace and Fred Davis, uh, Jeff Mace taught at the Lee School, and 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 Fred Davis was his student. And, and that started in like Captain America comics number 59 and, and all the way through, uh, gosh, I think 70 or so. And it was also in some cap stories in All Winners number one and a bunch of issues of Marvel Mystery Comics. And then in the 1950s, when Cap the Comedy Smasher came back, William Burnside and Jack Monroe were at the Lee School. And we've only seen it a couple times in the in really the modern era, right? We saw it in, in issue four of Captain America the Patriot, and, and it was briefly mentioned in Captain America 155. But the Lee School, like 
was a big background for a lot of cap stories in the golden age. Even Bet- Betsy Ross was in, in at the Lee, uh, Lee school. So uh, they, let a, they let a dame in there. She was a teacher there as well. So, I mean, it was, if, if you, if you're familiar with the golden age, you're familiar with the Lee school, but most readers these days, they don't know anything about the Lee school. So for that reason, it's going in my time capsule. You know what? Put me in that category. I don't know a darn thing about <laughs> the golden age. And I make no apologies. That's fair enough. I got you to tell me <laughs> anything I need to know about about the golden age. What do I need to do? Right. And if right. I need any answers about basketball, you're my my man. I know nothing about basketball. <laughs> I meant football. Whatever. Yes. You know what I meant. You know, I only made one basket, Bob. That was <laughs> I think we covered that. We didn't covered. We? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. Uh, all right. Next episode. Can't wait to talk to writer Paul Jenkins. So not only did he write four of these theater of war comics, uh, but he also wrote one of my favorite versions of Captain America origin, the mythos and, uh, and a few other things too, that are cap related. And of course, oh, wow. He's, he's just got a litany of, of, of comics over the last three decades. Um, looking forward to, to chatting with Paul Jenkins. So make sure everybody, you come back next episode. You're not going to want to miss that. Indeed. I can't wait. And also you don't want to miss, you don't want to, you know, you don't want to miss out on the opportunity to get your five-star review read right here on this podcast. So go to Apple and, uh, leave, uh, leave a, a five-star review and, um, uh, you know, write your review there and, and we will read it here on the, we, we really do appreciate it. It helps us uh, get noticed uh, on, on uh, Apple. So uh, we do, we do appreciate that. If you, you don't mind. Yeah, who, I mean, who doesn't want to be immortalized? I mean, in 25, 30 years, when people are listening to these podcasts, your five-star review is going to be out there. That's so. true, Bob. I mean, if you really think about it, like right? well, long after you and I are gone, these are evergreen episodes. Like yeah. if someone goes, I want to read about Captain America mythos, or I want to listen to something like that. Name another podcast out there that's going to take you panel <laughs> right. by panel through Captain America mythos for decades, Bob. Decades. Yeah. Uh, these will be, mark my words, in the Library of Congress. Oh, well, there you go. Until we get, until I get the, uh, the cease and desist order. uh all right well as always bob it's been fun wrapping cap with you it has i can't wait till next week all right he's bob lucius i'm rick verbonis and you have been listening to another episode of the captain america comic book fans podcast (laughs) 